So we continue our series in the book of Ephesians. It, it sort of seems like we've got a little bit of a, a mashed potato casserole kind of a day going on here. But you know, what we're going to be talking about today is how to have peace in our close relationships, in our families, and in our friendships, in our workplaces. That's where peace starts. And I think that's fitting for today. But first of all, we've got a little, uh, little exercise here. There we go. Does anyone remember these things? In case you don't know, these are, uh, you know, they were popular when I was a kid, these computer-generated images. And if you look at them the right way, uh, you, can, you can see things, kind of, uh, kind of 3D things. I mean, I'm just going to back up a little and see if it actually works. I was always really good at these. Um, no, maybe not. See if we look at it straight on. But you remember how these things work. I'm going to have a look from this side. Is anyone else seeing anything? What do you see, Elena? Penguins! Yes, it's penguins. Elena got it. The rest of you, did anyone else see the penguins? No? Okay, well, let's try a different thing. This, this is a, Oh, no, back up. Back up to the bear in the cave. Oh. There we go. When I was a kid, I also had this book. It was called Puzzle Island. And uh, it had all these paintings... And then you were supposed to find other animals that were hidden inside the painting. And around the edge here, uh, there were words missing, and that told you what you were, or letters missing that made words, and that told you what you were supposed to look for. So just to save you trying to unscramble it all, we're looking for a walrus, and a mouse, and a lizard, and a pigeon. Who can see the walrus? That's the easiest one. Yeah, everybody, walrus is up here, right? There's his tusks, and his, his flipper, and his body... His eyes right up there. Okay, anyone find the pigeon in the back? Yeah, okay, pigeon. Here's the pigeon right there. See him? There's his beak. There's the breast, the wing. Okay, the other two are even harder. Anyone find the lizard? Lizard, where's the lizard? Yeah, there's the lizard. See? Tail, little feet head. And the mouse? Anyone find the mouse? The mouse, I think, is the hardest one. The mouse is down here. There's his tail. There's his body. There's his nose right about there. This was, a, this was an enjoyable book. I spent, spent much time looking at it. Today we have a long text to look at. Part of this is just necessity so we can get through the book of Ephesians, but part of it is I think there's a common thread in each one of the topics we're going to look at today. I'm going to just tip my hand in advance where we're going. We're going to look at the passage you probably all know about husbands and wives, and it talks about how husbands and wives are a picture of Christ and the church, and I think it's pretty fair to look at parents and children and slaves and masters and also see that there is a picture of Christ and the church. You see the earthly relationship, that's like the bear in the cave. But then when you look more closely at the thing, you see that it's pointing to something different. That you, when you look at it the right way, you see a deeper reality, not just a little mouse hidden in there. So if you want to stand again, we're doing a lot of standing and sitting, but um, it keeps you from falling asleep. Got a bit of a lengthy passage here, but I'll try to not drag as we go through here. Wives and husbands, Ephesians 5, 22. 
We'll read these three sections. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is God's word. So here's the thing. Like I said, we've got a lot to cover today. We've placed a significant emphasis on kids as well, which means that as, as much as, as oh, we're skipping ahead here, as much as we might like to spend a significant amount of time on each one of these things, we're only going to be able to spend a little bit of time on them. So let's remember our basic framework for approaching each one of these passages. We first want to see the picture of the bear in the cave, so to speak, the earthly relationship. Then we want to look at the deeper spiritual reality. And then we want to look at how knowing that then works back and informs our earthly relationships with one another. If we're going to have anything resembling a proper understanding of words like headship and submission, those that we sometimes like to argue about in a passage like this, we'll need to start with something that's a little bit less ambiguous. So first of all, we'll just dive in. And for my money, the core of this passage, I think, is husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. It seems that the majority of this passage addresses the responsibility that men are expected to fulfill rather than the rights they are allowed to claim. Look at how much time the Apostle Paul spends on these, on these relative parts here. Spends quite a bit more time addressing men in the passage. And look at the different ways he goes through trying to explain what this love in practice is supposed to look like. He uses different illustrations. He talks about taking care of one's own body. It's essential that we get this before we move any further toward unpacking this. Men, husbands, dads, 
It's crucial that before any of us would think to, to claim rights that we might think are ours, we should understand what our responsibilities are. You know, a lot of people look at a passage like this, and they just kind of want to trash it. as This is just the Apostle Paul just being a part of his patriarchal and oppressive culture that viewed women as property and not really human. Sure, Paul was a part of his culture. We're all parts of our culture. We can't really escape from that. But as I've been saying for weeks now, Paul's teachings on on virtually everything in this book, they don't just sound countercultural and a bit weird to our 21st century ears. Aspects of them sounded equally weird and strange in Paul's culture as well. That's because biblical, true Christianity can't just make itself completely at home in any one culture. It's above them and speaks to them and informs them and corrects them. It's so vital that we get this. Specifically, Paul's exhortation to men to love their wives, that would have been revolutionary. This sort of language was not common in either the Greco-Roman wider world of Paul's day, nor was it common in uh, Second Temple Judaism as well. This, was, this would have sounded very strange in Paul's culture. Far from caving to it, he's challenging it. He's extending it. He's kind of doing the same thing that Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Saying, here's how you've heard it up until now, but, but I say to you that you've got to go farther. You've got to go farther. I'm, I'm extending this. We're going to talk about the heart, not just actions. He's challenging the status quo. So whatever leadership this passage grants men in the home, it qualifies it by consistently pointing it back to Christ. I know some of us get very weary of hearing about leadership. Sometimes we accuse those that talk about leadership as, well, that's just a bunch of language we borrowed from the business or the corporate world. We kind of roll our eyes a little bit. But that doesn't mean that leadership as a concept is not essentially crucial one or that the Bible isn't concerned with it. And I think it's very interesting, actually, that even the secular corporate world is starting to figure out some of the principles and some of the teachings that Jesus himself taught on leadership. Specifically, that leader is not the same as boss. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus was very clear as to what leadership in his kingdom looked like. If anyone has a position of authority, it's not to be used to take care of yourself and look out for number one. It's to take care of those that the Lord has entrusted you with and to look out for them. And we know that this wasn't just talk for Jesus. He laid down his life, not just as one more or less imperfect person laying down his life for some other more or less imperfect people, but the totally perfect and totally sinless person laying down his life for those that didn't deserve it in any way and were completely broken. And we also notice that Jesus took all the initiative in fixing what was broken. He didn't wait for any of us to get our acts together or make the first move. 
He stepped in and did it before we were even showing any interest in it. And at great personal cost to himself, especially in the short term. So let's bring it back. We've, we've seen the earthly relationship. We've seen the spiritual reality. Let's bring it back and see how it informs it. This is not to say that, that women don't also have a call to imitate Jesus, of course. This isn't to say that there's still a lot to be unpacked in what words like headship and submission and some of these other things that are contentious terms, how we should understand those. But I continue to be struck with just how much of this passage is addressed to men and to husbands and how high the call is. I'm struck with how direct the application runs. When something was amiss, it was Jesus that took the initiative in making it right, even if that was difficult and painful in the short term because he had his eye on the long-term view of this healed and whole relationship with his bride, the church. Jesus laid aside all his rights and served sacrificially even though he was the Son of God. How much more do we need to be willing to do so? If we're going to live together in something resembling harmony in our homes and in our family, someone's going to need to make the first move in making things right. And I think one of the things we can take from the Apostle Paul's teaching as men here is that it should be us to step up and do this, disregarding any short-term discomfort in order to make things right and pursue long-term wholeness and healing in our families. Now, some of, some of us men, women, are single, not married. But the time to start working on being these, this type of a person who imitates Jesus is not when you get married. It's now. The time is to start following Jesus, being the sort of person that it will be a pleasure and a joy to live with in that relationship. The next thing Paul moves to is, is children and parents. We've seen this today already. We've highlighted the children. We're going to be blessing children in other parts of the world. The first relationship, husbands and wives, highlighted the intimacy between us and our Lord. The, the next two highlight somewhat more our, our obedience and our dependence on him. And again, even though Paul doesn't specifically tell us that this is a picture of Christ in the church, given how much of a big deal the Apostle Paul makes on the fact that we are adopted as God's children, it seems pretty clear that parents and children is also a powerful picture of the Lord's relationship with his church. As in the previous example, Paul has something to say to both parties, although this time it's a little bit more balanced. And it's pretty basic stuff, right? Children, obey your parents. Parents, again, specifically fathers, discipline and train your kids, but don't do it in a way that will make them more rebellious. Now, the small children are in their Sunday school classes at this point, but we do have, we do have some who are older here with us at this point, likely. And the truth of this passage is, in many ways, more relevant to you anyhow. Because unlike the very small children, older kids are more likely to rebel because they're actually trying to rebel, not just because they're cranky because they didn't get their nap or something. They're doing it willfully to push boundaries. And parents, there's an appropriate amount of, of give and take and establishing freedom and, and setting those boundaries in a way that, that kids can test them. No, mom and dad don't always get it right, but the call isn't just to obey mom and dad when, when things make sense, when it seems convenient to do so. 
when you agree or understand. And parents, just a couple things from this passage. First of all, most of us recognize that we have, we have the natural desire and, and we want to make our kids into well-rounded human beings that have some skills and abilities to navigate life in this world. We want them to get good grades in school and go up to, grow up to be responsible. But the more important call is to raise them up to be disciples of Jesus. That's why in a child dedication such as we've seen today, we ask the parents to commit to such things as teaching and training their kids to love God's word, to love God's people, to love participating in that, and to do so themselves. We ask parents to commit to providing children with opportunities outside of the home to grow in their faith and become disciples as well. Other things, you know, music lessons and sports and all of those, those are fine things, but they're not the main things. Regarding the the comment about not provoking children to wrath, I don't think that means parents don't ever do anything that will make your kids upset. You're going to do stuff that's going to make them upset. That's just how it works. We're all going to have to make decisions that will be unpopular with kids. But the parallel passage in Colossians puts it this way, just slightly differently. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. I think the addition of lest they become discouraged adds a significant nuance. There's a difference between making your kids angry with you for a day or two because you had to tell them no about something they really wanted and making them bitter and discouraged as as a permanent state. Again, it's a line to walk. We won't always get it right. But hopefully with God's help, we can continue getting better and better at it. The spiritual reality here should be pretty straightforward too. Unlike human parents, our Heavenly Father doesn't struggle with walking that line between appropriately disciplining us and setting boundaries for us, being too lax or or too strict. Our Heavenly Father knows exactly what we need, and He gives it to us perfectly. He gets it right 100% of the time. That's not to say that we won't feel like our Heavenly Father's discipline or boundaries are too strict sometimes. We might not always like the things that he instructs us and how we should live, but that's not his problem. I'm not so much talking about the tragedies and the terrible things that happen in life. I'm more speaking about the boundaries that he puts in place that we read in his word. The things we were talking about last week, if you were here. How we walk out our faith. The things that we should do. The things that we are to avoid. In that context, even, it told us to be imitators of God as his beloved children and told us this is the way we're supposed to live. That's the spiritual reality here. I think one of the most important truths we can take away from this passage in a spiritual sense is that no matter how long we've been Christians, we remain children. As such, our posture before the Lord must remain one of obedience and dependence, especially concerning those requirements that God has put in place that we either don't understand fully or may not like all that much. You know, and there's always the danger that as we grow in our ability to interpret the scriptures and we understand them better and we grow in our faith, there's a dark side to that sometimes. And the dark side is we can use the knowledge we've gained to try to find ways loopholes, way to, ways to wiggle out from under the requirements that God has placed on us. We've all heard people do this, right? 
Well, in the original Greek, it says, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that, that little nod, that smug look. No, in the original context, actually this meant, and then you follow that up with something that boils down to, I really don't have to follow what Scripture teaches here. We need to be careful of doing that, to keep a childlike attitude before what our Lord tells us even as we grow and mature in our faith. I've already alluded to this, but hopefully remembering who we all are before our Heavenly Father. We'll put our own efforts at raising children, whether our own or whether we help others to raise their kids in the faith, into an eternal perspective. God's highest priority for us as his adopted children is that we continue to grow and mature into the image of our Lord Jesus. There's no higher calling than that. And the last relationship, and I realize we're, we're moving quickly through these, but they do all tie together. Here again, we wade into some typically, or, or at least potentially, controversial territory, especially if we, our translation says slaves instead of servants. Because then you get all the, oh, the Apostle Paul, see, he's, he's okay with slavery. He supports it. What kind of thing? He's just surely here caving to his culture. He's endorsing slavery for crying out loud. Here's the thing. Paul does seem to accept that slavery was, was just part of the culture that he lived in. But it is also important to consider the fact that unlike the previous two relationships, he doesn't make any effort to ground slavery in, in the Old Testament or in Scripture or in the work of Christ as such. It seems that slavery he recognizes is a, is a thing that exists. He doesn't try to back it up from Scripture, uh, much as some people unfortunately did back in the 18th and 19th centuries who called themselves Christians. So there's that. And it's true, what Paul says about slavery, it's not directly applicable in a one-to-one sense from first century Greco-Roman world to our our world today. It's not directly applicable from slavery or indentured servitude to our relationships in the workplace. But just because it's not a one-to-one correlation doesn't mean there aren't very important things we can learn here. Most of what he says doesn't depend on the institution of slavery where one person actually owns another or has total authority over them. The instruction to those under authority to do their work as cheerfully as possible and work hard even when no one is watching, that's pretty solid advice for any of us. Do your work wholeheartedly as to the Lord, not just to be noticed by people. We could all do that better, I'm sure. The affirmation that any work of a constructive and upstanding nature can be done as unto the Lord, even if it's kind of dull work, even if it's not what you'd consider glorious work, just sweeping floors or or whatever it is that seems maybe tedious or insignificant, it can be done as unto the Lord. Paul's teaching here dignifies work of all kinds as God-honoring. That's a tremendous thing. It should be a freeing thing. The instructions to those in authority to lead with similar goodwill and not with threats or force. That's definitely on track for any leadership in general. But it should be especially on track for those of us who are leaders in any sense, who name the name of Jesus and serve him as our Lord. Here, 
Paul spends the greater amount of his time talking to the party with less power in the relationship to the, to the slaves or to the bondservants. That's probably because there were far more of his readers who were slaves than those who were slave owners. However, as with all of these, the greater responsibility in the relationship still falls on those with the greater power and the greater authority. Paul, in particular, is fond of using slaves or bondservants or servants of the Lord Jesus' language. It's pretty clear that, again, we have a picture of Christ and his church. And similar to what we've already looked at, we serve a master who doesn't operate as a tyrant, who, who lords it over his subjects. Remember the little graphic we had, right? Not a guy sitting up here lording it over people, but a lord who came down to our level and served us. Rather, we serve a master who promises us, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's not to say that Jesus is just simply a pushover and we can do whatever we want. Scripture does have a great deal to say about judgment, but fear of punishment is not Jesus' primary means of motivating us to serve him. Although Jesus is ultimately the judge, and he will ultimately judge and punish evil and sin, our primary motivation to serve him as believers is not fear of punishment, but love of him as our Lord. So is this the perspective we bring to our workplaces? Those of us who are workers around here, I know that phrase, well, it's kingdom work. It can get a little tiresome. We hear it frequently, and sometimes we wonder to what extent, what extent is it making a difference? But it is, so much of it, kingdom work. We need to hear that. We need to remind one another of that. And we should especially do work that is work for the Lord's kingdom heartily as unto the Lord and not as unto men, not just for the recognition we get, but because by our work, especially in a place like this, we are serving our Lord. Probably goes for those of you who don't work here for paid employment, but your work here consists of being a student. You might apply the same thing to that as well. Those of us who are managers, supervisors, or whatever title we put in our email signature line, those of us who have a measure of authority. Do those who work for you know that you love and care about them? Are you following the example of Jesus in making their burdens light burdens or heavy? Are you trying to do what you can to make their burdens light and a pleasure, even if the work is hard? This has been one of the biggest realizations for me, stepping into the role of lead pastor. It'd be so nice if you could just say to your staff and your key volunteers, hey guys, do this and do this and do this. Now go and get it done. That's not how it works. It's a lot more complicated than that, and there's certainly a lot more work as far as care and concern for those that are closest to myself in the organization of our church that needs to happen. Pastoring your staff is a real thing. Again, I don't get it perfect but it's certainly something I've been learning. 
In other words, like all these other relationships, there's a sacred trust involved because they are all pictures of Christ in the church. You see how that works? I hope that as we move through these final chapters of the book of Ephesians, where Paul exhorts us to walk out our faith, we realize Paul just hasn't lapsed back into moralism or legalism. All that he's encouraging us to walk out flows from the grace that the Lord has already showed us, demonstrated, poured out for us. For Paul, ethics are always connected to the redemption that is ours. Or in other words, growth always flows from grace. Here's the thing. In those puzzle pictures I talked about at the start, finding the image, it was a fun thing. You can pass the time looking for the little animals in the picture. But once you find them, it's not really really significant. It doesn't change how you interpret the picture. It's still a bear in a cave napping with some ivy and flowers and whatnot. Didn't change how you interpret it at all. But when you see the deeper spiritual reality behind these three types of relationships we've been looking at and talking about, it changes everything. It changes and transforms the way we live together with one another from just duty and rule-keeping into a sacred trust that we have with one another. Because what we have with one another is a picture of what we have with him. It transforms our work and our family life from just filling roles into fulfilling kingdom realities. And let's remember in our individualistic culture that each one of these areas, each one of these pictures of Christ and the church is not a person in isolation, but it is people in relationship with one another that form the picture of Christ and the church. It forms the picture so that we can see it as the wider family of faith, and it forms a picture of Christ in the church that we can see, or we can show to people outside of the faith to see a picture of Christ in the church as well. We've been spending a lot of time lately looking at what it means to be the family of faith. Once again, I think we should be struck with just how central this is to what it means to be a Christian. Because all of these relationships are pictures of Christ in the church, they are infused with greater depth. All these relationships are then, in some sense, sacred. So let's live and act and speak and work and be the people God has called us to be out of that reality and from that reality. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to guide us in our relationships and interactions so that they may truly fulfill the calling to be pictures of Christ and his church. On this day when we pray and we think about peace, that's where peace starts. We won't have peace in the world if we don't have peace and harmony in the relationships that we have with one another. So let's take that into account. I'm sure there are many practical ways that we can live this out. Husbands and wives, parents and kids people who are supervisors and people who are workers, roommates, friends, all of these areas where we need to see what we're doing. Is it presenting a picture, an accurate one, of Christ and his church? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. 
for your word, as always. Thank you that it informs everything that we do. Our family life, our work life, our everyday comings and goings, the relationships that we have. Lord, this is a high calling because it tells us that the relationships we have are not just earthly relationships. There are deeper spiritual realities behind these things. And once we see those, it transforms the way that we should live in our day-to-day relationships. And so we pray that it would. We pray that with your Holy Spirit's indwelling presence in our lives, that our relationships may be more and more an accurate and authentic picture of you and us, of Christ and his church, as we seek to be the family of faith to one another and to a watching world. In Jesus' name. Please stand with us as we sing one more time today.